Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. Albert Einstein once said, It's not that I'm so smart. It's just that I stay with problems longer. In his own distinctive and frankly brilliant way, he was talking about the theme we'll be exploring on today's show. Perseverance. Over the next hour, we'll meet people overcoming obstacles and leaping over limitations. Like a man determined to save Chesapeake Bay oysters from a grim fate. This is like an intensive care unit for oysters. We'll also talk with a marathoner whose love for pounding the pavement knows no bounds. I've run over 100 marathons. Uh, I slow down after 100. Slacker. I know, I know. (laughs) And we'll hear from a librarian working to inspire readers inside the D.C. jail. They're all rushing over. They're really excited to see what books we have out now. But first... Ours is the hard work, the painful work, and the slow work. That's a quote from Alva Belmont, a major figure in the fight for women's rights in America. And that was about 100 years ago. About. It was 19, yeah, it was 1915. Indeed, Belmont uttered these words a century ago. The same year, Congress, for the second time in history, denied women the right to vote. It would be five more years before that right was finally won. Congress ratified the 19th Amendment on August 18, 1920. You can explore the story of the women's suffrage movement through photographs, drawings, banners, sashes, and other artifacts here at the Sewell Belmont House and Museum, where Paige Harrington has been the director since 2008. It's a wonderful story of women helping women, women empowering other women, and women coming together at a critical time in a critical way to make sure that a campaign such as suffrage was actually brought to fruition. This federal-style brick abode on the corner of Constitution Avenue and 2nd Street Northeast used to be the headquarters of the National Woman's Party, of which Alva Belmont was a key benefactor. Paige Harrington says visitors are sometimes moved to tears when they step inside. Because they know that they're standing where Alice Paul was. They're standing where Lucy Burns worked. This is the table that they, you know, sat every day and made phone calls and discussed and strategized. And there's something very profound about standing in a physical space and being surrounded by the artifacts from this lovely, wonderful, horrific campaign. Lovely, wonderful, and horrific. Not three words you often hear altogether talking about the same thing. No, but it is ideal in its nature. What What is more wonderful for a civilization to have equality for all of its people? Unfortunately, it is often horrific, the path to achieving it. And so that is very much what the women faced. When they picketed the White House, they were arrested for obstructing traffic. And so they were thrown into jail multiple occasions. It got particularly bad in 1917. They were either in the district jail or in the Occoquan workhouse out in Virginia. And the conditions were so deplorable with rats and bugs and cold cells that they actually tried to sleep outside in the hallways of the jail. We've got wonderful photographs in here, and you can see the women lined up where they've pulled their mats out and their blankets, and they're just laying in the common areas in front of their cells because it was just squalor in the cells. They had stories about having bugs and dirt in their morning oatmeal and in their lunchtime soup, and they went on hunger strikes, and then they were brutally force-fed by the guards. How long were they in prison? Some of them were in prison for months. And um, remember, this was all on the charges of 
obstructing traffic and other such nonsense. And in a lot of cases, their, their families weren't even notified. So the women went to picket, and then they just didn't come home. I see here you have a, a key hanging on the wall. We do. So this is a key to the district jail where many of the women were kept. And um, we're not quite sure how we came to have it other than we have been told that it was probably not in the best of circumstances. So in other words, maybe one of the women might have taken it and it just didn't get back where it was supposed to. So it's been in our collection all of these years, which is wonderful. We also have a huge collection of textiles. And when I say huge, I mean over 800 pieces of textiles. So the um, banners that they used to picket the White House, we still have many, 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 which is phenomenal to me because, you know, they picketed the White House in all days. It didn't matter the weather. They were spit on. They were rained on. They were snowed on. They had people yell at them. They had people rip the banners from their hands and throw them onto the dirty ground, and they would pick the banners up, bring them back to the headquarters, clean them up, put them back on the banner poles, and go out again. Um, Can you read what this one says? So this is one of the ones that was pointedly against the president, and it says, Mr. President, it is unjust to deny women a voice in their government when the government is conscripting their sons. Remember, during World War I, in general, people did not speak out against the president, and this was, again, a very pointed public way to hold the president accountable, which is exactly what the NWP wanted to do. They said, yes, we know that there's a war. However, we don't have the right to vote. So how can you be sending our sons abroad to fight for liberty and equality for other countries when we don't have it here? And so this was very bold and not very well received. The public was firmly on the side of the White House. And if you were going to support the war, then you were going to support the war. And anything else should have taken a back seat. Alice Paul and the rest of the women simply wanted no part of that, and they were not going to stop fighting just because there was a war. Indeed, they thought that was the reason that they should carry on and be so um, productive about it. So when you have visitors from across America and, and from abroad, mm-hmm. what are you hoping that they'll get when they see these sashes, when, when they see the key to the prison where the women had to stay? We try to make sure that everybody understands that this was a dark part, even a horrifying part of American history like we have had so many. And I think that it just gives people an understanding of what it means to be an American, what it means to not agree with what the government was doing, want to make it better, and therefore whatever it takes is what you're going to do. Our international visitors, it's wonderful when they come in. And we have, in the last 18 months, we've had groups from 30 or maybe 35 different countries, a lot of them in the Middle East. And these women will come through, many of them with translators, although many of them are very fluent in English, and they look at the photographs, and I think there is a solidarity. I've had women tell me, I feel better knowing that we're struggling and that America had to struggle so hard as well. So that's part of it. And then part of it is they'll come through and say, well, you have more work to do. You shouldn't just be running a museum. You should be picketing. You shouldn't just be worrying about what goes up on these walls. And I will say, yes, and thankfully there are thousands and thousands and thousands of women and men who are still out there fighting for us, but somebody has to preserve the history. Somebody also has to be able to say, hey, this happened before. Let's not let it happen again. That was Paige Harrington, director of the Sewell Belmont House and Museum. To see photos of that banner you just heard about and other images of women picketing the White House during World War I, head to our website, metroconnection.org.
Our next stop on today's Perseverance show takes us about two miles east of the Sewell Belmont House to the newest branch of the D.C. Public Library. It's not a branch most people will ever visit, though, because it's housed in the D.C. jail. Tara Boyle brings us the story. Down in the basement of the D.C. jail, you'll find a secured room, almost like a big metal cage. It's chock full of books. So over here is where we have all of our adult education. Um, This is our pre-GED and our GED materials. Danielle Zoller is the librarian here. And you'll also see that we have some employment materials as well. Um, Just a great way for the guys to work on reading and writing skills and math. That tends to be the, the big one when they're preparing for the GED. This is the first general purpose library ever in this facility. It currently holds 2,500 books with room for more. Everything is stored just as it would be in a regular public library, fiction, nonfiction. And then we also have our computers where we do all of our circulation information, uh, keep track of statistics and stuff like that. What this library doesn't have is a reading room. The inmates can't come to the books, so the books have to go to the inmates. Every morning, Danielle and another staffer will load books onto a cart, lock up the storage space, and head up to the housing units where inmates spend their days. It's basically a lending library on wheels. So is this pretty much a walk you do every day? Every single day. Um, You know we go to one housing unit a day, so just depending where I'm supposed to be determines first, second, or third floor. (laughs) One thing we haven't seen yet on this walk? Zoller's patrons. But just as we're rounding a corner on a long hallway, an inmate in an orange jumpsuit comes sprinting toward us, his shoes squeaking as he darts past. For a moment, there's confusion. Why is he running, asks the jail staffer leading our tour. A guard runs past us in the direction of the inmate. It's not clear exactly what just happened, but it's a reminder that this is not just any government facility. It's a place where, as of this week, 1,149 inmates are serving time behind bars. It's hard only if you allow it to be hard. One of those inmates is 47-year-old Washingtonian Curtis Cheeks. I got caught up in a assault charge and a kidnap charge, but, and then, you know, I was working. I was doing everything I was supposed to do, but, you know, when you, you mix drinking and, 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 and guns in your life, it's over with. Cheeks has been at the D.C. jail for about a year, and he has another eight years ahead of him in federal prison. He says the library system here is a refuge for him and for plenty of other inmates. You have a lot more guys laying back in their rooms reading than out and about playing basketball, getting on the phone. In the past, he says, the only reading materials they had were what he calls urban books. Paperbacks inmates would pass from person to person, books whose stories often paralleled the violence of their own lives. The urban books don't do nothing but put you back in that environment, and once you're in that environment, again, it, it tends to take you back on that, 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 that thinking of who you considered to be an enemy to you. Stories that glorify street violence or drug use are a no-go on Danielle Zoller's book cart. And that's just fine with Curtis Cheeks. I like James Patterson books for some reason. He has a variety of books that go forever. So I like to read majority of his books. DCPL says 363 inmates have checked out 769 books since the program began in January. Its launch has been exciting news to Sam Jeweler, a community organizer who started a campaign in 2013 to bring a library to the jail. About a year and a half ago, I guess, um, it came out that there had been a 
a high number of suicides and suicide attempts at the D.C. jail. And so uh, Council Member Tommy Wells at the time held a roundtable discussion on this issue. After that roundtable, Jeweler and other activists met with prison librarians from across the country to get their advice, and they continued to lobby city officials. One of the exciting things about this campaign was was getting people to, first of all, be aware that there's a big jail in D.C. A lot of people don't even know that. And then to just think about inmates as people who want to be able to read and want to be able to have, like, mental security. The jail library costs the city about $300,000 per year. That money covers books and staff salaries. DCPL's executive director, Richard Reyes-Gavillon, says he'd eventually like to offer inmates some of the programming you can get at other libraries, like life skills training or tips on how to read to their children. In the meantime, librarian Danielle Zoller is encouraged by the early response to her library on wheels. When I'm waiting to go through that first locked sliding door, uh, they're all rushing over. They're really excited to see what books we have out now. So it's been a really positive uh, feedback so far, which has been amazing. Her hope is this excitement will help these men feel more comfortable in public libraries and help them to persevere once they leave the jail and resume their lives out in the world. I'm Tara Boyle. You can check out that library on wheels for yourself. We have photos on our website, metroconnection.org. Time for a break, but when we get back, why D.C.'s HIV rates have many people puzzled. How did I stay negative and some of these men were positive? And, and what was that difference? That and more in a minute as Metro Connection continues here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. Today we're talking about what it takes to keep on keeping on as we bring you stories of perseverance. Earlier in the hour, we heard about the ongoing struggle for women's rights and the district's successful fight to provide prison inmates with a library. Our next story is about the issue of gay rights. Nowadays, same-sex couples can legally marry in 19 countries and 37 American states plus Washington, D.C. But at the same time, oppression towards sexual minorities is on the rise in many places like Uganda, Nigeria, and Russia – As a result, more and more LGBT individuals are coming to the United States to escape persecution. Lauren Ober brings us the story of one gay couple seeking asylum in the nation's capital. Andrew Nasanoff remembers the moment he knew going home to his native Russia was not an option. It was after his wedding in D.C. last year to his longtime partner Igor Vasilevsky. It was a sunny fall day, and they took pictures in front of the White House. This, Nasanoff thought could never happen in Russia, at least not while the country's anti-gay propaganda laws turned LGBT people into criminals. After we got married, I finally decided that, no, I will not be going back to that country. And so the pair extended their visit to the U.S. permanently. 
they let their tourist visas expire and made friends with lawyers who would help them seek asylum. For now, they're in a holding pattern while they wait for their case to move forward. And they're not alone. Dozens of LGBT Russians have come to the D.C. region to seek asylum, says Patrick Forrest. He's a lawyer here who represents LGBT asylum seekers pro bono. As, as Russia began to feel more intimidated by the LGBT community, they passed laws that were repressive. And the reaction to that was LGBT Russians seeking asylum in the United States because, frankly, they ended up being persecuted in a more visible way than they had before. In 2013, the Russian state Duma, the country's legislature, passed a law, quote, for the purpose of protecting children from information advocating for a denial of traditional family values. The law ostensibly made it illegal for LGBT Russians to be open about their sexuality. Instances of violence and harassment against the country's LGBT population skyrocketed. Igor Basilevsky. 2013 was kind of the peak, but little by little, it had been escalating. Nasanov says there's always been hostility in Russia toward the country's gay population. But the 2013 law, he says, codified discrimination and gave license to anti-gay violence. In an atmosphere where newscasters from the leading TV channel in the country are reporting that the hearts of gays must be burned and buried, for those who aren't very educated, for those living in rural areas, and for the prison population, it's a signal. Back in Russia, Nasanov had been a journalist and longtime gay rights activist. Because of his advocacy, he and Basilevsky were targets. Nasanov remembers going to a rally against the anti-gay propaganda law and being beaten by counter-protesters. After the rally, he went to the local police station to file a report. But rather than help, the police roughed him up further and questioned him. Oh, God. They started interrogating me very brutally, and I didn't even know what they wanted with me. They said they knew a lot about me, and they knew I had a tender relationship with my mother. They said, we'll take you to the forest and chop off your head and send it to your mother. After that incident, Nasanov went into hiding for a while. Then, a year later, another incident happened that brought Nasanov and Basilevsky one step closer to leaving Russia for good. Uh, a pro-Putin group put a billboard up on a building where Andrew was picketing, saying these are traitors. It had photos of civil rights activists and politicians, and there was a photo of Andrew on it. Splashed across the billboard were these words. The board of shame. These are traitors, scum, and simply monsters. Know their faces. In addition, their apartment was vandalized and covered in anti-gay slurs. Nasanov and Basilevsky knew they had to leave, at least until the fervor died down. So they came to the U.S. in October. I didn't clearly understand that we would have to stay here for the long term. I thought things would calm down and that maybe we'd get to go home. But things didn't calm down. Once photos of their wedding surfaced in Russia, the threats poured in online. Going back home seemed far too dangerous. So the couple made the decision to seek asylum here in the U.S. We called the Russian embassy here in D.C. for a response to this story, but were unable to reach officials there. Patrick Forrest, the lawyer who has advised the pair, says anecdotally the number of LGBT asylum seekers in the region is on the rise. 
This is due largely to the city's reputation as being gay-friendly, even though D.C. doesn't have a formal network for LGBT asylees. Groups of us come together informally and kind of have put the word out to some of the local not-for-profits and say, if you are approached by someone seeking asylum because they've been persecuted because of their sexual orientation, give us a call, let us talk to them, let us figure out where they are. Since landing in the U.S., life hasn't been easy for the couple. They can't work while they're waiting to file their asylum claims, so money has been tight. They've had to live with friends and accept charity for food, transportation, and other basic needs. It's not what they're used to. Back in Russia, both men had good jobs that they would never have left were they not in danger. At times, it's too overwhelming for Nasanov. It's so hard, and I'm so tired. But he hasn't stopped fighting. He still advocates for change in Russia and believes that one day it will come. He and his husband just can't be there now to help it along. I'm Lauren Ober. Some other people who know about facing stigma in your own community, African-American HIV-positive men. HIV has had a disproportionate impact on African-Americans in Washington, but researchers say they aren't necessarily engaging in riskier behavior. Eva Harder brings us a look at how black leaders in the city are fostering conversation about a once-taboo topic. If you go online and search the words HIV and African-Americans, you'll probably find a number that experts repeat again and again. Even though African Americans make up only 13% of the population in the United States, they account for nearly half of all new HIV infections every year. Here in D.C., the HIV prevalence rate for black men is more than double what it is for the city as a whole. The question is, why? How old were you when you came out to your mom? 21. It was over uh, coffee, I mean, over cheesecake and Golden Girls. I'll never forget it. (laughs) This is D.C. resident Christopher Chauncey Watson. It was the episode of Golden Girls where um, Rose's friend is gay. Clayton, you're that thing that everyone said Olga Larson's nephew was because he wore pasty clogs and gave out puff pastry on Halloween. I've been called a lot of things in my time, but that's a first for that one. Yeah, I'm gay, Rose. And um, she said, well, are you gay? And I said, well, yes, I am. And she probably gave me the best advice that I think I've ever, I still keep it to this day, which was, well, you know, everyone's not going to love you the way I love you, but know that I will always love you. Watson himself is not HIV positive, but he works at George Washington University's Public Health Research Clinic. And he spent a lot of time researching why gay black men are more likely to contract HIV than gay white men. We've seen the disparity amongst African-American gay men um, rise over the past decades. And, and no work has really been done to that. We've not seen sort of a transition or funding efforts move towards that. And so it's really, really disheartening that we continue to see these rates. And what is a truly preventable disease? A few years ago, GW School of Public Health partnered with the National Institutes of Health. Researchers interviewed more than 1,500 young black men who have sex with men in six different cities 
including D.C. STDs were very extremely high. Healthcare access, people not having access to um, equitable or, or kind care within their cities. Watson says even though he's HIV negative, he sees a lot of himself in the men he interviewed. I questioned how did I stay negative and some of these men were positive and, and what was that difference and, and what decision did I make differently? Um, did I use, use a condom more than they did or um, was my practices? It, it, it became very personal. In 2010, one study in D.C. showed black men were not having more sex than white men, nor were they having more unprotected sex. In fact, black men's sexual behavior was actually less risky. According to this study, the real reason black men are more at risk of getting HIV is because they're less likely to have health insurance, less likely to get tested, or less likely to tell their doctors they've had sex with other men. I think the biggest thing is that um, there's a link. People are finding that it's not just about HIV AIDS. It's about what causes people to become infected because HIV is a completely 100% preventable disease. So why are people still getting it? That's Oral Folks. He's the CEO of the Center for Black Equity, which is based here in D.C. but organizes black LGBT pride events around the world. What's the use of having, uh, giving someone uh, medicines and, and, and putting them on a regimen if they don't have a house to live in or a stable living environment or they have mental health issues or they have the lack of education, can't, they're struggling to find a job? We have to look at, in the black community, we have to look at the issues that impact black folks. One of those issues is the church. The black church is, can be particularly conservative, and, and, and that conservatism can mean, um, it can translate to homophobia in many cases. You just can't leave the church because you leave the church, you leave your family, and you leave the one of the few things that, you know, that you're rooted to. If there's anybody who has a strong opinion about the church's role in fighting HIV, it's this man. Change something in each one of us so that none of us leave out the same way we came in. So that people see more of you and less of us. That's Bishop Rainy Cheeks, the openly gay, HIV-positive leader of Inner Light Ministries, a small church that meets in the Anacostia Arts Center every Sunday morning at 11. I am HIV-positive, and so I am very open about that. Um, my members know, so we take out all the shame and guilt. Cheeks was diagnosed back in 1985. When I went to the doctor and they finally said, you're HIV positive, I tell everybody, this is usually what it sounds like. Um, well, your test labs came back and I need to inform you that you are HIV positive. That's what it sounds like. You don't hear anything else. And you just sit there and look at them and go, mm-hmm. You don't hear anything, because all, all you hear in your mind is, I'm about to die. Fortunately, HIV is no longer the death sentence it used to be. The month of November 1988, I did 17 funerals in one month. Last year, I think I did maybe three funerals, and only one was HIV. Cheek says the stigma of being gay in the African-American community is one of the things putting black men at risk. People would go into, well, um, I'm not gay because uh, I only do the penetration. And I would go, no, boo-boo. <laughs> You're playing a game with yourself. For Cheeks, fighting the HIV disparity means taking away the power of secrets and removing the power of shame. 
And usually if somebody at my church that come to me and they've they've come HIV positive, I said, one Sunday I want you to be bold enough to stand up and say it. And every once in a while somebody just had to stand up and say, I need to just tell you that I'm now an HIV positive. And, you know, it's like, okay. And I, I look at them, I said, notice the world didn't end. People embraced you anyway. I'm Eva Harder. You can find links to some of the research Eva mentioned on our website, metroconnection.org. Remember now a leader who made a lasting mark on D.C.'s choral arts scene, Norman Scribner. Scribner was the founder and longtime artistic director of the Choral Arts Society of Washington, D.C. In 2012, he talked with Metro Connection about how the society was founded. The birth of the Choral Arts Society was as the result of church choir performances that I was involved in from 1962 on. Scribner was the son of a Methodist minister, and his early experiences with sacred music defined his career path. I remember standing behind the organist, marveling at his feet flying and his hands flying and the choir singing. I got pulled in very, very quickly to a solid commitment that I wanted my whole life to be music. Under his leadership, the Choral Arts Society performed internationally, presented world premieres, and worked with legendary conductors. Quite a legend himself, Scribner put down his baton in 2012 to spend more time with his family and focus on his compositional work. We're all a community of music lovers here in service to the same goal and have been for decades, and hopefully it will go on for decades. Norman Scribner died this month at the age of 79. His funeral will be held April 9th at the Washington National Cathedral. We'll be back in a minute with more of Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're exploring what author Victor Hugo called the secret of all triumphs, what philosopher Lao Tzu called the foundation of all actions, and what actress Julie Andrews called failing 19 times and succeeding the 20th perseverance. The guy we're about to meet knows a little something about that, and he has nearly 2,900 miles to prove it. How many marathons do you think you've run? I think I'm up to about 110. Uh, I slow down after 100. Slacker. I know, I know. I need need to step up my game. This is 26-year-old Washington, D.C. native John Wayne Louie. And just to get it out of the way, his Chinese immigrant parents still haven't disclosed why he shares a name with the Duke. Are you a Western movie fan? I'm not even. I'm not even a Western movie fan. But I do love that name. When John Wayne was younger, his mom and dad had another way of referring to him, too. He and I are sitting inside Chinatown Express, the restaurant his family's owned in D.C.'s Chinatown for nearly 30 years. And when he would help out at the restaurant as a little boy? My mom said I had, um, in Chinese, it's... Fai so fai good. 
which is like fast arms, fast legs. So I was like this little eight-year-old running around, busting cable. Those fast arms and fast legs eventually helped John Wayne run those 110 marathons, 50 of which helped him set a new record. In 2012, he became the youngest person to complete a marathon in fewer than four hours in every American state. So how long total did it take you to do the 50 states? It took me 19 months. And at the time, did you know you were going to be the youngest to do this in under four hours per marathon? Initially, when I started, I didn't know that I was going to be the first one to, to, to finish. But as I was inching towards my goal closer and closer, then I realized this is a real thing. <laughs> the first race was in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And after Philadelphia, I was thinking, why not run another one? So seven days later, he ran a race in Maryland. Right after that race, I decided, why not? Let's keep going. And I, one week later, I went to Tennessee. A couple of weeks after that, he went to Florida. Once I was in Florida, it's like four states. Okay, now let's look at the, the big picture. Let's create this massive action plan. To save time and money, that action plan, he explains, had to be efficient. And by efficient, I mean some weekends would be two marathons in two states. What folks in the running world would call a double. My first double was in Jackson, Mississippi, and then Mobile, Alabama. Pretty soon, John Wayne was doing triples. That's three marathons in three days. And then the mother of them all. Four marathons in four days. A.K.A. Quadzilla. John Wayne's first Quadzilla was over the Thanksgiving holiday. It would be a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. What did Monday feel like? Uh, Sunday felt pretty bad. (laughs) (laughs) But that didn't slow down John Wayne Louie. He kept running race after race until at last he arrived at number 50. The 50th marathon was in Valentine, Nebraska. And in a way, he says, that one was the most familiar. As an undergrad at American University, John Wayne was a casual runner. A few miles here, a few miles there. But then he graduated and joined the Peace Corps in Morocco. I was in a small town, a desert town, and I would do this 13.1-mile loop that just ran flat and just around these quiet villages. And it was just me on the road, just running around in a circle. Which was kind of the case a few years later when he ran that 50th marathon in the Cornhusker State. They bust us out all the way, you know, out there in the sand hills, And then the run back was just one road, just kind of winding through. But I remember crossing the finish line and just feeling a sense of accomplishment, just achievement, that I did it. I did it. How amazing. (laughs) But here's the thing. Those fast arms and fast legs didn't stop there. I knew it wasn't over quite yet. At that point, John Wayne was thinking, you know what, I've gotten this far. I think I was 70 marathons total lifetime at that time. Why not just keep going? And I knew I wanted to run to 100. So he did. He saved his 100th for Washington, D.C., the 2013 Rock and Roll D.C. Marathon. And that, he says, still remains my favorite marathon. See, when John Wayne was marathoning through the States, He'd sometimes travel with fellow runners. He'd crash on the couches of Facebook friends of Facebook friends. But he was on his own, running courses he didn't know, far from the people he loved best. Traveling becomes very difficult. Um, My nephew was born um, in April of 2011, and it was really hard to just pick up and leave. So being home sweet home for his 100th marathon felt right. I was familiar with the route. I would have family on the course. I would have friends all over the place. And in the end, they cheered him all the way to the finish line. These days, John Wayne Louis' fast arms and fast legs are still moving. 
He's up at 5 every morning, running with the Capital Area Runners Club or cross-training at District CrossFit, sometimes both in one day. He still lends a hand at the family restaurant, and he's enrolled in law school, studying at the University of the District of Columbia to become a public interest attorney. There are a lot of low-income residents in D.C. that have serious unmet legal needs, and I hope to alleviate some of those issues. If you ask him how he finds time for it all, he says it boils down to two philosophies, two mantras, if you will. One, say yes more than you say no. And two? My mantra is not radio appropriate. (laughs) However, you can get the point when I say do cool stuff. Do cool stuff. my, My big thing is I really, really want people to chase after their dreams and chase after their goals and their objectives. It can be something small. It can be something big but make the time to chase after it. And if you have the drive and the determination, then you too can have fast arms and fast legs. Doubles, triples, and quadzillas, optional. You've heard John Wayne's story. Now see him in action. We have photos of him zipping around the race course on our website, metroconnection.org. All right, so we've been hearing a lot about the persistence of people on today's show, but our next story is about the perseverance of a certain bivalve mollusk, the oyster. Harvests of native oysters are, by some estimates, less than 1% of what they once were. And the dramatic decline of this pollution-filtering creature has changed the entire ecology of the Chesapeake Bay. But scientists say all hope is not lost. In the first of a two-part series, environment reporter Jonathan Wilson brings us to the Horn Point Oyster Hatchery in Cambridge, Maryland. It's part of the University of Maryland's Center for Environmental Science and is dedicated to repopulating the bay with nearly a billion oysters each year. Dr. Donald Merritt is the driving force behind the oyster hatchery at Horn Point. And one of the first things he shows visitors is a video clip of a female oyster expelling eggs. So what we're looking at here is oyster porn. That's right oyster porn. This is how Merritt often talks, which you might expect from a man who's happy to go by his nickname, Mutt. But there's a method to Mutt Merritt's madness. You're never likely to forget a lesson he's teaching about his oysters, and he has a lot to teach. She's going to slowly open her shells and pulse a group of eggs out. There she goes. And imagine, I mean, an oyster the size of my hand, a very ripe female, could produce tens of millions of eggs. Horn Point's hatchery was established in 1974 in response to the aftermath of Hurricane Agnes. That storm brought record rainfall to the region, changing the salinity of the bay. It resulted in catastrophic losses to many species, including oysters. The hatchery's main aim was figuring out a way to revive the oyster industry. Initial funding actually came from the Economic Development Administration. But in recent years, the work of Merritt and his team has provided the foundation for oyster restoration efforts in Harris Creek and the Little Choptank River. Both hold sanctuaries where oyster harvesting is now prohibited. We believe we're on pace to fully restore two of our better oyster tributaries in Maryland within the next five or six years. 
That's Mike Naylor, the head of the Maryland Department of Natural Resources Shellfish Fisheries Program. He says overfishing and the proliferation of two oyster diseases, MSX and Dermo, meant that where once Maryland could count on harvesting 15 million bushels a year, the state is now lucky to get a couple hundred thousand. The hope is that we'll allow disease resistance to develop and for these oyster populations to grow without harvest pressure in these sanctuaries. Full restoration in this case means something very specific. In a 2011 report, the Chesapeake Bay program concluded that a successful sustainable reef has a minimum threshold of 15 oysters per square meter, with a total dry weight of 15 grams in that same space, and oysters must cover 30% of the reef area. This might seem like we're getting a bit in the underwater weeds, so to speak, but metrics are important to Mutt Merritt, who's currently showing off a set of gurgling giant tanks that sit on a pier here at Horn Point. This is where oyster larvae finally set onto carefully cleaned oyster shell. Merritt says too many people talk about bringing back oysters without having a real goal in mind. Bringing them back to what? to what they were when John Smith sailed up the bay, to 1980, to 1990, to 1950, uh, all over the state of Maryland, all over the Chesapeake Bay, and there's all kinds of caveats to that. Whatever the target might be, Merritt and his team seem to be getting better and better at raising oysters. Using eggs and sperm from native oysters, the hatchery has gone from producing 17 million tiny baby oysters, or oyster spat, in 1997 to a record of 1.2 billion oyster spat a few years ago. One secret weapon Merritt has at his disposal comes in the form of his hatchery manager, Stephanie Alexander, who's been working with him for 18 years. So I've gone from a one-room hatchery to this huge complex. And she does mean huge. The new hatchery, it's about 10 years old now, has separate rooms for cleaning oyster shells and developing the algae used to feed the oysters. There's also a sophisticated computer program for controlling the temperature of all the water shooting through the pipes throughout the facility. To give you a sense of the scale, one room holds rows of giant fiberglass vats where larval oysters swim around while they're too small to settle. Each vat holds 10,000 gallons of water. Merritt says the first versions of the vats held just 100 gallons. But as impressive as the Horn Point hatchery is, it couldn't operate without people like Alexander pushing herself and nurturing the oysters. They're my babies. Every single one of them that leaves here, in some way, I had a hand in producing. So they're my babies. I do not eat them. I find them highly disgusting. But they're good for the bay. And I want to see him out there. As for Merritt, beneath his tough exterior, he says he too has a soft spot for the creatures of the bay. He grew up in Maryland, after all. But any optimism he has about bay restoration is tempered by a belief that looking back isn't always the right move. Everybody you talk to wants the bay to be back what it was in 1960. You know, I'd like to have the body I had in 1962. Ain't going to happen, all right? But Mutt Merritt will continue to push Horn Point to do better research and hatch more oysters year after year. That way, whatever the future holds for the bay, healthy, disease-free oysters can be a part of it. I'm Jonathan Wilson. 
Want a more detailed view of bivalve reproduction? I'll bet you do. We have that video Mutt Merritt was talking about on our website, metroconnection.org. Our final tale of perseverance today takes us to Charles County in southern Maryland. A few hundred years ago, you would have found a bustling city there by the name of Port Tobacco. Today, though, Port Tobacco has an official population of 14, making it the smallest town in the entire state. So who's living there today, and how do they keep their community chugging along? We sent Hans Anderson to find out. I start my day in Port Tobacco at the center of town. Well, welcome to Port Tobacco. You're standing in the foyer of the reconstructed courthouse. It's Sheila Smith is with the Society for the Restoration of Port Tobacco. <laughs> so this is the courtroom. Uh, it's, it's about the same as it was, uh, as far as we know, as uh, early times. She's walking me through the history of the town. It was one of the biggest ports in Maryland before the Revolutionary War and the seat of Charles County until the turn of the 20th century. The town also claims Thomas Stone, a signer of the Declaration of Independence. Point being, Port Tobacco was kind of a big deal. There were three hotels, two newspapers, and the entire square out here was like a shopping center. That's Kay Volman. She lives next door to the courthouse and is also a member of the Society for the Restoration of Port Tobacco. Looking around the town, it's hard to imagine what Volman is describing. Today, there's one road, a few homes, a one-room schoolhouse that's a draw for kids on field trips, and then this courthouse. So what happened? The river, in a lot of places, you can walk across today. By 1890, the Port Tobacco River had silted up. Then the railroad chose to go through La Plata, three miles to the east, and county residents wanted to move the county seat there. They finally get a vote in 1891 to move the county seat. It's defeated. Residents tried again in 1892. And it's defeated again. But then a mysterious fire broke out in Port Tobacco. The records are all found out in the the front yard here, but the courthouse is burned to the ground. La Plata became the county seat soon after. The courthouse was eventually restored, but the town wasn't. The census as of this morning, my husband and I counted, there are um, 14 people. There's a mayor and a town council. Nearly every household is represented in the city government. Taxes are collected. And these days, the town devotes much of its energy to preserving its history. Bullman and Smith are working with the county to turn it into a tourist destination, a little Williamsburg, so to speak. But Port Tobacco isn't just a living history museum. Ask Mike Williams. I told you, grow. You know, you got, I mean, just like in the early area, it's been grown since I was younger. Got more houses, more people around here. Williams is at Murphy's Store. It's one of those Maryland liquor stores that serves drinks. In this case, you can buy a beer, take it to the side room where there are a few tables and a TV. The store is just past the town line in unincorporated Charles County. And even the liquor store has a history. Right now where you're sitting at, this used to be the post office. This is a little area right here. Williams considers himself a lifelong Port Tobacco resident. He grew up across the street from the courthouse, and he has lived in the area for 52 years. People used to raise tobacco and all that around here. And then when all that faded out, like right over there, the house there, all them fields where right there used to have tobacco in it. This field right here, tobacco, 
all down through there at the back of the farm up there at the back. All that's gone. Ain't none of that around here no more. Now, William says, farmland is turning into housing developments. The farmers that remain are growing something other than tobacco. Corn, soybeans, sorghum. Bill Grove agrees. You know, when I first moved here, I could pull out of my driveway. I didn't have to look left and right. You know, now it's, you can't even get out of this parking lot anymore because all the cars going by. Grove is talking about unincorporated port tobacco. Well, port tobacco proper isn't but uh, 200 feet. <laughs> that idea of port tobacco proper, it confuses Williams. I live in port tobacco. You saying I'm not in port tobacco there? You're in the mailing address, but not in the city proper. What, what is the city then? The, 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 What's my city then if it ain't port tobacco? You said it's not considered port tobacco when I met, so what is it called? The real town of pet port tobacco is that cornerstone sitting in the back here right up there. For Williams, it's all part of the same community, one whose story has changed dramatically since its days as one of Maryland's busiest ports. Bill Grove again. It's a good, nice town. That's all I can say. I mean, it's very historical. I mean, everything around here is pretty historical. It's old. And that history is also in the residents, whether they're technically in Port Tobacco or not. I'm Hans Anderson. That's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Hans Anderson, Jonathan Wilson, Lauren Ober, and Tara Boyle, along with reporter Eva Harder. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. That's metroconnection.org. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jenning Record Company. If you missed part of today's show or you want to check out previous editions of Metro Connection, head to our website, metroconnection.org. While you're there, you can also subscribe to our weekly podcast or find us on iTunes. We hope you can join us next week when we'll devote ourselves to commitment. We'll meet a couple who recently met and got married in their 90s. We'll hear why some D.C. public school teachers say the system should do more to show commitment to excellent educators. And we'll bring you the next installment of Clips, our series on D.C. barbershops, as we visit an old-school spot in Adams Morgan known for its one-of-a-kind hair creations. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.